It's the day after Christmas, 2004. You leave your home saying bye to your family and that you'll see them later. You may even add, and I love you at the end. You may be wondering what the day will be like. Now that the rush of Christmas shopping has ended, you now have to enter the week of year-end sales and returns, as well as people who may have gotten gifts of a gift card or cash, trying to make sure that doesn't burn a hole in their pocket. Will everybody be kind and patient, or will they be rude and impatient? You're crossing your fingers and hoping for the kind and patient type of customer. The men's clothing store that you work at will probably be quite busy. The only plus side to this is that it makes the day go by faster, but you also try to think about your customers and how much you love working with your coworkers so you can get through this. That's what you tell yourself. That's because there's no way ever that you could know that by the end of the day, some evil human being, if you even want to call them a human being, will take your life. He'll take you away from your parents, your siblings, your future. And 18 years later, there's still no answer. There's no justice. And to this day, no one's been held accountable for your death. And it's about time that they were. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and thank you so much for taking time out to join me today and listen to the story of Jessica Watson and Matthew Maserato. If you are a returning listener, you may have noticed that I kind of changed up the way I did the opening. I wanted to make sure that the the story and lives of these two young people were front and center instead of everything else coming at the beginning. I've wanted to change that up in the past, but had some difficulty doing so with trying to find the right words to convey what the case will be about. So I will try to continue to do that so that there's a better understanding of the type of case or content that we'll be covering that day. If you're new here, though, welcome. And if you're unfamiliar with Delmarva, Delmarva covers all of Delaware, Maryland to the east of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Virginia to the north of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. On this podcast, I cover tragedies that have happened all across Delmarva. And even though that may sound like a lot of land to cover, Delmarva has this feel. I feel at least like we're one big community. I've lived in both northern and southern Delaware, mostly in the southern part of Delaware, but I've also traveled a lot to Maryland, working in two cities in Maryland, and I also visit the eastern shore of Virginia quite often, and it's one of my favorite places to go. What I find, too, is that whether or not we think about it, we have connections to events that have taken place in the past and taken place around us. So when reading about this case, I couldn't help but think again, like I've done in the past, about what's happened where I'm at, what's happened on the ground where I'm standing or sitting or working. Has there been a marriage here? Has there been death, sickness? Have there been dances that have taken place here? We just don't know. And while living in Wilmington, I didn't know that a location that was very close by to a place where my friends and I used to go for a coffee or a bite to eat, it was right there. I could see it or walk to it from this place. 
the scene of today's crime is a place that I passed probably hundreds of times and didn't know that just a few years earlier that two young people were killed. I moved to the Wilmington area sometime around 2006, and these murders took place in 2004. Yet somehow I didn't hear about the crime until I moved back down to Southern Delaware. Day after day, I passed this store, the casual male, big and tall, Wood Highway. My home was actually on Kirkwood Highway. And I didn't know that in that location, Jessica Watson, 22, and Matthew Maserato, 18, were killed with their lives cut short so meaninglessly. Now, before I get started on their stories, I just want to go through a couple of things that I've heard some people refer to as housekeeping. These are things that I just want to cover or let people know before we get into the stories. First is I am putting out two episodes pretty close together. Normally, they're a little bit further apart, but my last episode was delayed a little bit because I had a small kitchen fire. Everybody is fine. Had to replace a few things in the kitchen, like the hood to the stove and a cabinet. And some things are singed, but everybody's fine. It just kind of delayed things with the cleanup. And even before the, the actual cleanup and repair began, I'll tell you the day that it happened, I, I couldn't concentrate on anything else. So that episode came out a little bit later. But I wanted to get this episode out today as it is the anniversary. And while everybody may be sitting back and myself included, thinking about the holiday, about spending time with family, there are two families that when this year, time of year comes around, they don't think of happiness and joy. They think about the death of their loved ones. So those are the reasons why these episodes are coming out so quick. So if you've not had a chance to listen to the previous one, um, that was called Perception Equals Reality. And it was a really interesting case from 1922. And looking at that story, there are still things that are relevant to today's crimes. But at the end of the case, we were still left with so many answers. So I just wanted to let you know everybody know to look for that previous episode. Um, you know, and that two episodes are coming out within a relatively short period of time. Now, some of my sources will be available on any web browser or search, but some of the sources that I used are through a paywall at newspapers.com. I always try to use sources that don't go through a paywall, but sometimes it is necessary. And as this case does go back 18 years, it was more difficult to find the contemporary articles from the time of when the murders happened. So I did have to review some articles from some years back. Because of that, I will put a link to the newspapers.com page in the description of the episode. But after that, I will put the newspaper name and date so that if you happen to have a subscription to one of those newspapers, that you'll be able to access it, you know, in that way. Now, as with any podcast that covers this type of content, there will be a discussion of things that some may find upsetting or disturbing. Most of the time, the content on my podcast 
will include discussions of violence or death, and it may be upsetting to some, so I completely understand. I do sometimes have an episode that doesn't have all of those things in it, so please check back every once in a while and see if I've put out one of those episodes. Also, I do have a little bit of a different microphone setup. I mentioned that in the Perception Equals Reality episode, but I'm still trying to try it out. If there's any difference, positive or negative, please let me know. Like, Drop me a message on the Facebook page. That will be linked in the description as well because I want to try to figure out the best way to proceed so that I'm putting out the best quality episode that I can not only in content, but in sound, because I want people to want to listen to the episodes. Also, as I mentioned, some of the sources I use come through a paywall. If anybody would be interested in donating to just try to offset the cost of some of that and allow the continuation of those resources, I would greatly appreciate it. Um, no matter what, I will always keep, though, looking for cases and researching, but that would just help out with some of the um, cases or tragedies that go back a little bit further where most of the information is through a newspaper's archive or something like that. I will have a PayPal account and buy me a coffee linked in the description. And another way to support the podcast is to share like, or leave a review, as that helps make the podcast more viewable to people who are searching for a new podcast to listen to. And each person, whether it's a true crime case, or a tragedy, or event that happened that affected people's lives, each one of them deserves to be remembered. So I just want to put their stories out there so that People like those in today's stories will have their names remembered, even though their lives were cut way too short. With all that being said, let's get into the tragic deaths of Jessica Watson and Matthew Maserato. It's now been 18 years after their children's deaths, and the parents of Jessica Watson and Matthew Maserato, along with other family and friends, are waiting on answers as to who and why did someone take the life of either one of these young people? Paulette Watson said in an interview on Delaware Online that, quote, certainly the pain never goes away. It's like this time of year, you still feel what you felt. It's like the setting of the day, the temperature of the weather. It's just like a reenactment of the day, especially when I put the Christmas tree and lights up that's the scene I had at the time, end quote. No parent should have to go through the death of a child, much less one at the hands of a violent crime. But these two young people were killed, leaving their families looking for answers. Looking at the pictures of the two, Jessica had a warm and inviting smile that I'm sure took her far in the role of customer service and sales, that she worked in at the casual mail. Matthew was just 18, entering the world of adulthood, learning from others who worked at the store prior to him and trying to carve out his own niche in the world. Jessica was attending Delaware State University. She had a daughter that was around 22 months old. 
And while the murders did take place in Wilmington and Jessica was living there, she had been raised in Milford. That's a town that is kind of in the middle of the state. It's probably a good hour or more drive between there and Wilmington. So it really puts it around the center of the state. Jessica excelled at athletics and was part of the Milford High School track team. At that time, she had set a school record with her teammates in a 100-meter relay. She then enrolled in DSU, or Delaware State University, after graduating from high school. She did need to take a little bit of time off when she had her daughter in 2002. Needing to support herself and her daughter, she started to work at the casual mail while also attending college. So she was someone who had a lot of drive. It seemed like she liked the customer service aspect of the job. And while, of course, the end goal is to get a sale, being polite and attentive will also get you a return customer and probably even a smile out of it. It sounds like Jessica enjoyed helping a customer put together the perfect outfit. Um, There's an antidote that her mother told, which sounds like something I would have done and that I actually appreciate as a customer when I am shopping. She took all of the shirts and put them in a color order so that they were easier to find. If you were looking for a specific color, you didn't have to sort through all of these different shirts that had different colors or different patterns. So while she was there to do her job, she didn't just do her job at a minimum. She wanted to do her best and succeed. Matthew was the youngest of seven children. I can relate as I'm the youngest of 10. And I have to wonder if he felt some of the same things that I've felt at times. I feel like I'm lucky to have such a large support system And because of the number of kids in the family and a pretty big age gap, it's always kind of felt like I had extra parents. There were always people there who could pass on life experience as only a sibling could. They could put their own perspective on the world as an adult, but still not be your parent. Now, Matthew loved music, and locally, he was pretty known on the music scene. He had also been working on an album. He wanted to make this his full-time life's work by producing music. He had only been working at the casual mail for about a week. Jessica and Matthew had to make quite the team that night. Jessica was warm and outgoing, and Matthew was, quote, friendly and soft-spoken, end quote, according to a writer named Jen Baxter. So these were two very well-loved young people who wanted to do the best at their job and to succeed in whatever career path they chose. Matthew did still live at home, but he had many nephews and one niece. He was even the godfather to one of his nephews. He had so many positive things going on in his life. One of his brothers was getting married soon, and Matthew was to be the best man. And just before starting work at the casual mail, he and his family had went on vacation a cruise to the Caribbean. Nobody really could say a negative thing about him or Jessica. Matthew's soon-to-be sister-in-law, Andrea Smolsky, said of Matthew that he was, quote, a really good kid and didn't have any enemies. He was really big into his music, 
and produce the beats for rap music for the group Third World. He had all of these hopes and dreams and somebody took them away from him. End quote. At the time of these murders, Casual Mail had about 500 stores, but the big and tall store in Wilmington is no longer there. A human resources representative, Wally Sprague, who happened to be the vice president of HR as well, said that, quote, it's an unbelievably terrible tragedy. Our priority is to provide the families with the support and help them as much as we can, as well as the other store associates who are their colleagues, end quote. But people still gather at the site of the store on the anniversary to try to raise awareness to the unsolved case and to remember the lives of Jessica and Matthew. On that tragic night in 2004, the two young people were closing up when a gunman entered the store. Now, as you would expect for most stores or murders that take place in one, the motive was money. But instead of just asking for money and leaving, the person forced the two of them to go downstairs into the basement. And there, with their backs turned to him or her, he shot them both in the back of the head. Paulette Watson asked a question that I'm sure so many would in that situation. She said, what do you do when your entire world turns upside down? December 26th that year was a Sunday. The store was closing at 6 p.m. that day, which I'm wondering if it was because it was a Sunday, how many stores close a little bit earlier in the day than the other days of the week. At 6 o'clock, the store would begin to shut down, and the associates in there would ask customers who'd not yet checked out of the store to please do so. Efficiently, Jessica and Matthew were able to ring up the last sale at 6.02. As many stores do, once they close but customers are still in the building, the employees shut the front door and lock it with an employee needing to be at the door to let the last customers out. You don't want to leave the door unlocked and have 10 more customers come in after you should be closing down, cleaning up, and restocking. Matthew was the one who was in charge of going to the door and making sure it was locked once he let out the customers. Jessica's first line of business was to balance out the registers, and once everybody was gone, they started on their tasks with Matthew then moving to vacuuming around the store. Though only at the store for about a year, Jessica's demeanor was very friendly and she had this willingness to go above and beyond for her customers. She had this drive and willingness at work and that resulted in an opportunity for her to become a first assistant manager. She had been there less than a year when she was asked this so we can see that Jessica was excelling at balancing everything she had, had to do within her life. She attended college, worked, and raised her beautiful daughter. Jessica now lived in Wilmington with her sister, Anitra. It was pretty close to the casual mail, being only about eight miles away from the store. Going by the normal schedule, Jessica would have normally gotten home around 7 o'clock. However, 7.30 came and went, and Anitra was worried. She called Jessica both on the store's landline and on Jessica's cell phone. Still trying to maintain a sense of calm, she tried to rationalize why Jessica may not be home. 
Was it that she was busy with it being the day after Christmas so that they actually closed up later than usual? Was there a problem with reconciling the register that they desperately needed to get corrected before the store opened on the following day? She continued to call, but it was all to no avail. When nine o'clock came, Anitra could not hold her concern any longer. And by what I've read about Jessica so far, we can already see that she is a responsible young woman who balances work, school, and family life. So with it getting so late and no word from her, Anitra decided that she needed to go check on her. So she did what most of us would probably do in the situation. She got in her car and drove to the casual mail. Because of the close proximity, she got there at around 9.15. Jessica's car was still there, but the store was locked. And in what most of us will only ever see in a made-for-TV movie or crime scene show, a family member starts the process of finding what they should never have to see. Anitra found during her search that a door in the back was partially open. Probably fearing what she may find inside, she started to call out for her sister, but was only met with silence. I can almost imagine the sense of dread that was coming over her. It may have been almost palpable, but this was her little sister. So she went through the door, and the door that led to the basement was just inside of this rear door that Anitra had just entered. She didn't need to go down the stairs. She could see the bodies of Jessica and Matthew and could tell that they were dead. She knew that both of them were gone. I don't know if I, in the immediate aftermath of seeing that, would have been able to call 911 as quickly as Anitra did. There had to be this shock going over her that the day started out just like normal and expecting your sister to come home at seven now turns in to the worst moment of your life. With a report of a double murder, police very quickly arrived at the scene and started to protect the integrity of that crime scene by blocking it off. There was no chance that this was an accident. There was no chance that this was possibly a murder-suicide. It was described as execution-style. The police had the same thought that I initially had as well, and still feel after reviewing all of the information on this case. Earlier, I said the motivation was money, and money was taken. But was it a secondary motive to the crime? Why would someone kill two people to steal some money? Yes, we've seen people kill others for less, but it just seemed like it was going too far to march two people downstairs and kill them just for a little bit of money. The amount of money taken wasn't disclosed in anything that I read, but you have to wonder, someone who thought out the crime enough to know to march the people downstairs, to get their bodies out of the way, so if someone, say, approached the store and thought it may still be open, that they wouldn't see them lying inside the store. It bought the killer some time. So it's not Someone, it seems to me at least, who would just impetuously steal money and not think about the consequences. So instead of, say, just putting on a mask and gloves so that he couldn't be identified, why would someone take the risk of killing two people 
And instead of just having an armed robbery charge, which yes, is bad enough, but not as bad as double murder. It just seems like an extreme reaction to me that someone would do that. Then again, what most of us will think about the situation probably differs drastically from what this murderer would have felt. But we do have to remember that this was 2004. While many, possibly even most, people were using debit cards or credit cards at the time, cash was still very prevalent. I know looking at it from today's viewpoint, we see almost everybody using their cards for every purchase. Personally, if ever I'm in a situation where, say, uh, a credit card machine was down and I was told I had to pay cash, I don't know if I'd even have enough cash on me in order to do so. I just don't carry that much cash, cash, if any, around, nor do many of my family members. But 2004, even though it's less than two decades ago, in some ways feels like a lifetime and a lot of changes have taken place. So there probably would have been more cash on hand at that time than there would be today. Also, because of the day where Christmas fell on a Sunday and they were very busy on the Saturday, the deposits had not yet been made for Friday night's receipts. So it is possible that there was a larger amount of money available on hand than normal, and it was taken. But a big clue about what did or did not occur was something that was not there. And that was a mess. The only thing that seemed out of place was the vacuum cleaner that still sat on the sales floor. All of the clothing was tidied up, the trash was taken out, and investigators even looked outside to see if there was a possibility that one of the workers had taken the trash outside and been surprised by a burglar who then forced them back into the building at gunpoint. Unlike today, surveillance cameras were not always available. There wasn't an easily accessible, say, ring doorbell or a quick and easy security camera that someone could put up on their own. So the casual mail, unfortunately, was one of the stores that did not have surveillance cameras inside doing what we may have seen and heard on dozens of crude crime, sorry, true crime shows, investigators went to other businesses to see what they may have available um, as far as video went and to sort through them to see if anything was suspicious, such as a person or vehicle around the store at that time. They worked tirelessly on the video that they found, even having it enhanced, but all of that was for naught. There wasn't anything on the video that they could find to lead them back to the casual male and the double murderer. Most murders are committed by someone who knows the victim. As there were two relatively unconnected victims in this case, with Jessica being older than Matthew and with Jessica going to school in Milford and Matthew living in Wilmington, they probably didn't attend the same school. And Matthew had only started the job a week before. So there probably wouldn't have been many, if any, mutual acquaintances outside of the few people they knew at work. There was also no clue that anybody had 
any grudge against either one of the two young people. There's nothing looking at their pasts that would lead anybody to believe that someone would want to murder one of them. But, of course, the investigation would have to exhaust all lines of questioning. Otherwise, that would make this a random crime, which is much more difficult to solve as there's no intrinsic link that leads back to the murderer. But as things were shaping up, it seemed like this was exactly one of those murders that was committed by a stranger. Investigators went through the receipts of the day, both to get a timeline as to when the last customer left and to see if there were any receipts that customers may have used a credit or debit card and could be traced, and to look at their backgrounds as well and see if there were any you know, alarm bells going off about them. The last customer that was rung up on the cash register did pay by card, and he was easily traced. When police approached him, he cooperated and was interviewed. However, he did have a very important thing to say. There had been one more person in the store after he had checked out. The man in the store was described as being a white, heavyset male, standing about six feet tall. A distinct characteristic was the back of his head was shaved. Another individual who had been in the store and bought a shirt was from the Washington, D.C. area. As the case was garnering a lot of attention locally, and D.C. not being that far from us, he responded to the public plea for help. He corroborated the account of the heavyset white male being in there, saying that there were two customers in the store when he left, and one would have been the man who had the receipt and had been rung up, but the other man was still unidentified, but with the general description that was given, it did sound like the same man. While not having a picture of him to put out, the police asked in an appeal to try to see if anybody had any information. Did they know someone who had that distinctively shaved head? If so, have them get in touch with the police. However, there was no proof that this person was actually a suspect. He could have been in there just to ask a question. Um, I know that actually I would sometimes buy gifts from the casual mail and there was it a couple of times where I would ask them if they could have something shipped to the store. So it would be, you know, something that, you know, I, I wanted to buy as a gift, but it wasn't the right size or the right color. And so he could have just been asking that. There, even though he wasn't rung up, there's no actual evidence that he was the one who would have committed the crime. Adding to that was the fact that the back door was open so could someone have accessed the store through that back door with, again, the man described as heavy set, white, with a shaved back head, could have just been in there completely innocently. And the police was very care they were very careful in their wording as they didn't want him to feel like he was a su suspect in the murder. If he did feel he was a suspect, that would affect him, you know, coming forward or it would affect someone calling the police and giving a tip that that person was the man who was at the casual mail that night. Forensics also worked meticulously at the scene. Much of the external work had to be done on Monday. The bodies had been found on or about 
um, 9.15 p.m. on Sunday evening. So it was very dark by the time investigators got there. So they could review the scene on the inside of the store and use the lighting from there to look for clues. However, the outside was more for Monday. A piece of evidence found within the store was a shell casing. In investigations, that could be like gold. There could be fingerprints left or some type of identifying marking on the casing or even DNA. But that was yet another piece of evidence that led to a roadblock. Casual mail and its employees, as well as corporate, continued to cooperate with the police. Um, the store actually shut down for a little while, and it seems like that was not necessarily something the police asked, but I'm sure as a company, they wanted to give their employees a chance to grieve. I've actually been in that situation twice, where an employee has died of natural causes, one while I was working who I didn't know very well, and another who I did know well, um, but he passed away just before I was going into work. But in either one of those cases, it's very difficult to walk into a building knowing that. And in this case, the employees would be walking into a building that not only were their co-workers killed, but it was killed in such a violent manner, and knowing that you would be walking past an area where they took their last steps. And if you had to go to the basement, you would be finding yourself in the place where they were found. It was an unimaginable situation. As far as customers, since this crime was very well known and was, you know, in the media quite a bit, a lot of customers probably wouldn't want to go there at least immediately as well. Sure, the chances of someone coming back and committing a second murder was very low, but even, even not knowing Jessica and Matthew, I don't know if I would have been able to go back into that specific store as well, knowing that two young people lost their lives there. The investigators, while evaluating the crime scene, wondered how the killer knew about the basement, or if they even knew about the basement at all. As Jessica and Matthew were taken down there, it almost seems like they would have had to know. It would have been two against one if there was only one killer. So if it was the one person, you may expect a little bit of a scuffle, a fight to try to get away. So the police also had to consider a possibility of there being two killers. So having the possibility of you know, two people involved in the crime or more was a big possibility. There could have been one person who was guarding Jessica and Matthew while the other stole the money. But still, the question just keeps coming up. Why kill Jessica and Matthew? If the robber had wore a mask and gloves, as long as they were careful, they could get away without having to kill two innocent people. And as far as media coverage, Jessica's old English teacher from Milford High School and her track coach there, a man named Czar Bloom, was shocked to hear that one of the victims at the casual male murders 
was Jessica Watson. He said that he had seen the story and said, quote, you see those types of stories and you don't think of the people involved. The next day I found out it was Jessica and it made it all the worse, end quote. And I think this quote shows that even 18 years ago, when people heard a story so many times where it's a story about violence and death, that we've almost become numb to it, that we hear that people were killed in a robbery or a carjacking or anything like that, any type of violence, but we don't really think about it further unless it's someone we know or that we're connected to, or if it's you know, a child that's killed. And that's just becoming, unfortunately, almost like a norm to hear these types of stories every day. And so that's echoed in this quote that he had heard about the murders but didn't really think about them. And this is not to say anything negative about this teacher and track coach. I think, though, it does reflect what a lot of society sees and does when it comes to violent crimes. Mr. Bloom went on to explain that Jessica was part of the track team with two of her cousins, and he said that they gave the team personality. He said, quote, I got to spend three years with her. She was naturally gifted and won out there and did very well, and she was a fun person to have in class. The personality, she was one of those genuine people. We had a lot of fun on the team, end quote. One of the first pictures I saw when researching this case was a picture of Matthew's father, Gene. He was at the store and he had the task of picking up his son's car. When he got there, he saw that many people had left memorials to the two people senselessly killed. Gene Maserato picked up all of the flowers and put them in the car, echoing what most everybody believed that the murders were unnecessary. Moving forward with the theory that the killer had to know about the layout of the store, as well as looking at past motives for violence in a workplace, they got a list of current and past employees. With looking at information on the current employees and interviewing them, there wasn't an individual who stuck out as a suspect. So they seemingly didn't know anything about the murders. And the police, in their minds at least, ruled out any of the current employees. Moving on to the previous employees, they were really met with the same thing. There was no new information that could be provided about why someone would want to kill the two. With many investigators still believing that this had to be targeted, with the burglary acting as either a cover-up or secondary motive, police went through Jessica and Matthew's histories and couldn't find anything at all that would make a person believe that Jessica or Matthew could have been a target of a murder. The case quickly became frustrating with no valid leads after a week of intensely searching, interviewing, reviewing tips, and exhausting every lead that came their way. They asked for people to come forward who had been at the store that day, especially those between 5 and 6 p.m. And a number of people did call in, but they weren't able to add anything to what the police already knew. However, 
the man who would have matched the description that they were given never tried to contact them and they were never given a tip that they could substantiate as someone being that particular man. Some local Ford dealerships donated towards a reward fund. There were four of the Ford dealerships that donated $10,000. Casual Mail donated another $10,000 and Crime Stoppers added $1,000. Right, this is just a little bit of a personal opinion here, but really $10,000 Casual Mail. You know, I get it that nobody wants to give an award or reward to someone who may have known a murderer or possibly even known about it beforehand and didn't do anything to stop it. You know, just so many reasons why someone may not necessarily want to pay a reward, but money does talk. And somebody just killed two of your employees, you know, looking at it from that day's perspective. You know, someone just killed two of your employees. I, I think maybe a little bit more at least could have been given. Even though later after the case had stalled a little bit more, Casual Mail did pay to have like a rotating billboard down Kirkwood Highway and other highways in the area to keep awareness alive of the case. But, you know, still, again, money talks. People will sometimes, you know, talk for money, whereas before they wouldn't have come forward with any information. But that's just my opinion. I'm trying to tell myself that this was 18 years ago, so $10,000 is more than it is now. But with these rewards now in place, the police still got nowhere. There were no new tips coming in, and the case was going cold weather quickly. In early January of 2005, Melissa Maserato, one of Matthew's sisters, said, quote, Matt was a fantastic kid. We can accept that he is in a better place, but we can't accept why and how. It happened. We're begging for answers. We can get peace if we at least know why, end quote. And they have not had peace to this date. Brenda Watson, who was Jessica's aunt, said that both families were, quote, in this together and want justice served, end quote. She went on to say Jessica was a beautiful person. She was the mom of a 22-month-old baby girl, and she was working hard to get herself through college. She said that this was just not fair, and that the people or person who did this needed to be found so that they could not destroy anybody else and their lives. Going more of an unconventional route, the two families decided to contact a psychic. Being very open-minded, though, the detectives were willing to work with anything that they could get and would listen to a psychic if it seemed to lead towards new evidence. Now, in my mind, I can almost see people rolling their eyes, but there was a reason probably for this. There had been an episode recently on Court TV about a case in Delaware there was a psychic who had been brought in on a case. Months after a young woman had gone missing, her skull was found on the greens of a golf course. It was actually found at the 12th hole. So it was theorized that animals had spread her bones throughout the area. So that's just horrific for the family as well. 
but a psychic, though not giving any leads or specific information about where to find the remains, had said, you know, presumably before the remains were found, that it would involve a green and animals. So it was locally in the spotlight that a psychic had been used at one point in time for a case. But whether or not you personally believe in psychics and their ability to give information to investigators, it was something that the families wanted to do and the police were willing to go with whatever information that the psychics provided because they didn't have anything new to go on. The families held fundraisers to not only pay for the psychic, but they also wanted to add to the reward fund. Kind of going back to a comment I made previously was that, you know, at one point the sum total went up to 26000 after some donation came in, donations came in. But these were two young people whose lives were just needlessly and senselessly taken away from them. There was a young mother whose daughter was going to be growing up without her, with only pictures and stories about who her mother was. There were nieces and nephews that would never get to see their aunt or uncle smile or hear their voice. And though it was 18 years ago, and by the rates of inflation, I know $26,000 was more than it is now. But I would have hoped that some of the businesses in the area could have chipped in a little bit more. Not only could it have brought justice to these two innocent people, but if a violent killer was caught, it would make their businesses safer as well. Matthew, who had been a rapper and had aspired to be a music producer, was honored by the owner of Sam's Music Connection. Sam Vaughn had a rap tribute for Matthew at his store on December 29th. He stated that, quote, We called him Baby Alchemist. He did a lot of the production for a lot of the local rap groups in the area. Most of the rappers who produce tracks perform there. Admission was going to be charged for $3 and T-shirts were going to be produced with all of the proceeds going to the Maserato family. Besides growing up without her mother there for support and love, there would also be financial concerns for Jessica's daughter, Janiya. Stepping up for their fallen classmate, DSU students held a spring talent show with the proceeds going towards Jessica's daughter. It was going to be for a college fund, which was very fitting as the fundraiser was being held by a college. Not too long before the murders, Paulette Watson herself was the victim of a violent crime. A previous boyfriend had attacked her outside of her home. He came at her with a knife, and she now carries the physical scars that he left on her. Unlike her daughter's case, though, this criminal was found and convicted. But this was because he was known to the victim and could be quickly identified. While sometimes we hear of rewards for violent crimes being in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, those are pretty, pretty rare. Those are the cases that you hear nationwide coverage for. But for Delaware, as the reward reached now $34,000, it was one of the biggest that investigators had ever worked with. But still, there were no tips coming forward. When the one-year anniversary approached, a vigil was held outside the store. 
Both mothers pleaded that someone would come forward and provide information that could identify the murderer. Delaware State Police reached out to the FBI as well. Now, I do have to say that in some of the cases I've done, the police or different law enforcement agencies are not afraid to reach out to other agencies for help. Though I know this can't be said about every agency or department, it does seem like a lot of the stories that I've researched, the police will either call in a larger um, department or the state police if they're not already involved. And in this case, the state police asked the FBI for help. And they did provide information from a profiler who said that he determined, quote, the murderer was very violent, remained cool, and collected under pressure, and had not lingered at the crime scene after the killings. The profiler also added that he believed the murderer was someone who was affiliated with the store, or at least had a familiarity to it. Now, that was paraphrasing, um, that last part was paraphrasing, and I decided to use the word affiliated rather than employed, because it could be someone who was not necessarily employed by the store, but someone who was familiar with it. It could have been, say, an employee's friend, and that friend came to the store a lot of times to hang out. Yes, I know you're there to work, but I think most of us have probably had a job if we worked in retail that a friend has come to visit us and we end up hanging out. There could have also been people who were familiar with the store because they did other work around the store, such as maintenance maintenance crews, you know, electricians, HVAC, even those that worked on the building to construct it. And so while I do believe still that the murderer had an affiliation with the with the store, investigators could not completely rule out the possibility that it was random. A lot was made about the fact that the employees, Jessica and Matthew, were marched down to the basement. But when I'm looking at this aspect, I have to think back to when Anitra found Jessica and Matthew. The rear door was open and she could see the basement before she had to go too far into the store. So if it was random, there could have been someone who was checking doors, found that the back door was unlocked, and once he stepped in, if the door that led to the basement was open or ajar, very easily he could see what was in there. Just by opening the door, which would only take a few seconds, he could also look down there and see that it was a basement. So it's not necessarily you know, someone who had to be completely familiar with the building, because of this fact of how Anitra was able to get into the building, I do really have to wonder if it could be a random person who walked in and saw a convenient place to take any of the employees to. So with just where my thoughts are going, that is at least one point towards the possibility of it being random. However, I still kind of swing back to someone being familiar with the store because how would they know how many people were in there? So even if it wasn't an employee, 
even if it wasn't a contractor such as an electrician. Someone may have been in the store earlier and noticed there were only two people working. If there had been four or five people working, that may have totally you know, thrown a potential murderer's plans off because one against five or even two against five, the numbers are just a little too stacked there. So any thoughts I have about this being random kind of go back to targeted when I think about that fact that there were only two people working that night. Eventually, law enforcement took another route that was just becoming known um, to law enforcement agencies. You may have seen these before where victims of cold cases are put on a deck of playing cards and passed out to prisoners. So both Jessica's and Matthew's pictures and information was put onto playing cards and were passed out to prisoners in the hopes that either the pictures or the stories with the cards would lead someone to talk, that it would lead them to provide a tip or evidence so that they could try to solve the case. Paulette moved away from Wilmington. She now lives, or at least at the time of the article I read, lives in Dover. She wanted to get away from the city. She keeps the memory of her daughter and Matthew alive by commemorating their lives every couple of years at the site of the murders. Of course, with the pandemic um, over the past couple years, she did not get to do that in 2020. She does keep in touch with the Delaware State Police, and in turn, they have let her know that they are continually looking at this cold case and trying to find more information. I also wonder how many of those detectives or parents themselves, and when they think about this case, they think about their own children. I also think about the pain that the Watson and Maserato families feel every Christmas when they see people putting up trees and lights, but knowing that the holiday season doesn't bring them as much joy, if any, anymore since the loss of Jessica and Matthew. Time can make people reevaluate relationships. Pamela Watson said people need to stop being afraid of the enemy and tell what they know. If no one comes forward, we're going to keep burying our family members, end quote. Representative Dennis Williams of Wilmington, who was also a police officer previously, recognized that witnesses are crucial to the prosecution of a murder case. The percentages may have changed slightly since then, but this is what he had to say about crime around the time that Jessica and Matthew were killed. He said that more than 80% of homicides won't be solved without witnesses. He then brought up you know, a very valid and valuable point that, quote, when people see you interviewing someone more than once, they focus in and the person is assaulted. People won't testify because these guys are hardcore, end quote. So it does take someone incredibly brave to come forward to report a crime, especially something like an assault or murder, because if someone was capable of those violent crimes, what could they be capable of in the future, including violence to you, the witness? Depending on the case and situation, though, there are actually funds administered by the Attorney General's office 
that can offer protection or even in some cases having something comparable to the Federal Witness Protection Program. Now, many people don't know about this law, but even with this, the witness would still have to give up some of their freedom. If it was more on the short term and they had to stay a few months in, say, a hotel or safe house, they're still giving up their freedom and their time with their families. But if they do go into some type of program similar to the Witness Protection Program, that means that they would be giving up their family members, their home, you know, where they've lived, you know, at least for the past few years, if not all of their lives. So even with these laws in place, it's not something that a person can easily do. While I'd love to say myself that if I witnessed a crime and I felt that there would be a threat towards myself, that I could still kind of work through that and give the testimony. But I don't think any of us can say what we would do until we're in that situation. So while it's great that this law is in place and that it's recognized that witnesses can be intimidated, it's still not done without the witness giving, a lot, giving up a lot of their own personal freedoms and things that they love and people that they love. So unfortunately, it's not that easy to just say the witness can go or should go forward and give a testimony if that person's life is in danger. At the time of an article that I read in 2005, police said they had five murders in that year with only one of them being solved. In the previous year of 2004, Police had solved 13 of 19 murders. And again, going back to 2005, nationally, the clearance or solved rate around homicides was around 71%. When it came to Wilmington cases, the Wilmington police did say at one of the, that one of the main issues was the lack of cooperation from the public. And again, while I'd love to say that if I were to witness something, I would come forward immediately. I don't think any of us can say that we would unless we were in that situation. The one case that had been solved in that year was the case of Stephen Cleveland. While the family was working on fundraisers to try to get a reward um, for Mr. Cleveland's terrifying case, it was actually solved. Um, Stephen Cleveland and a friend had been walking when they were ambushed by three men, two of them having guns. They were told to strip down. Now, Stephen did not want to, but his friend did. And that friend was able to run away and get away from the men, even though he was undressed at the time. But Stephen refused to undress. And he was shot for that. He was taken to Christiana Hospital but died there. Police were able to quickly identify at least one suspect who was arrested for other crimes and the other two men were in hiding. Stephen's sister said that she could see one of the wanted men going to his aunt's house but they never seemed to get him because nobody would contact the police and let the police know that he was there. So it was possible that a murder victim's sister would see someone 
wanted in connection to the crime and that person not be caught and put away. So I am going to try to do my best to find more information on this particular case and, you know, just find out if the other two were ever found or arrested or, and what happened to the one that was in custody. Wilmington has one of the highest murder rates in the country. Out of every 100,000 people, 44.2 were murdered. However, when those numbers are calculated, it's based on the number of the population being 100,000. If the population is less, then the actual number of murders would be less than that 44.2. So the actual number of people killed was 31. Still, what this number says is on average, if there had been 100,000 people in the city, 44.2 on average would have been murdered. This shows that for a relatively small city, it has a very high rate compared to the 6.5 per 100,000 average for the nation. So let me just repeat those numbers again. National average, 6.5 per 100,000. In 2020, Wilmington, 44.2. There was also almost 1,600 violent crimes reported per 100,000. And the national average was 399 per 100,000. So that's four times the number. This means that Wilmington ranked 13 in the nation as far as you know, dangerous cities or the highest crime rate. Surprisingly as well to me, Dover, Delaware, which is the state capital, was ranked 49th with nine murders for the year. But using how the averages are calculated for um, a crime index or crime numbers, that means if there had been 100,000 people that lived in the city, on average, there would have been 23.4 murders with 856 violent crimes. And while the total number of murders and violent crimes are not available for 2022 yet, a website called bestplaces.net does a crime or violent crime index to compare cities. Wilmington in location is very close to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. But when it looks or when we look at violent crime, Wilmington actually has a higher average. Based on the index in place on bestplaces.net, they calculate a crime index from 1 to 100. 1 would mean you're very, very safe on the low end of a violent crime spectrum, whereas 100 is the very worst. So you don't want to be at that or close to that 100. Bestplaces.net uses the FBI database to calculate these numbers. So, so far in 2022, Wilmington has an 80.1 violent crime index. So again, 100 is very bad. Wilmington is 80.1. This, this is a number that you don't want to score higher on, but Wilmington is at 80.1. Comparatively, Philadelphia, probably a city that you hear more about in national news, that they're considered a large city, their crime index for murder is 50.8. So that's 
Wilmington's about 30 points higher on the index, but the average for the United States is 22.7. Looking at nonviolent crimes, um, so such as property crime, Wilmington has a 68.7 compared to Philadelphia's 46.6. So Wilmington is still higher than Philadelphia and almost twice as high as the national average, where the national average is 35.4. So some might say that as populations increase, people are living closer together and resources are being drained. And maybe that's the reason why crime is going up. In a previous episode, I don't have the exact source right now, but Delaware was listed as one of the most densely populated states. So even though we have a pretty small landmass, you know, we're only the second smallest state in the United States, we are densely packed together. So there's a very high number of people living per square mile. And while I'd love to say that I have answers on how to fix crime or how to make people feel better about themselves, I don't have that answer. And I don't think any one individual has all the answers. The reason why I said to make people feel better about themselves is I am a firm believer of supporting people when they are young to you know, support their endeavors, support their likes and their interest, to give them a better self-esteem. And just my personal opinion is sometimes I feel that crimes, some of them that are committed, stem from earlier issues that may not be addressed, such as a lack of support either in school or at home, um, and having a lack of resources that are needed to meet your dreams. I hope that one day resources can be generated and given to those who really need it, and that resources can be directed to areas that help students grow when they're young and build up that support and self-esteem so that we all are not living in a community where the crime rate is forever increasing. I would love for there to be adequate support in every school to help guide young children into areas of study that they love, that there's someone there to be a cheerleader and be their advocate, and to make them feel proud of their accomplishments. Jessica's mother said that Jessica took pride in her work, and we can tell that she was excelling at it, and who knows what she might have been able to accomplish if she had lived. And what type of music would Matthew be producing? We might be hearing his name on the radio or seeing his name in the headlines, but again, we'll never know. Jessica's daughter, Janiya, will be entering adulthood. She's now, just based on the numbers that I had at the time that Jessica was killed, um, her daughter would be about 19 years old. That means Jessica's daughter is now older than Matthew was at the time of his death. And she's also very close to her mother's age. And I have to wonder if her daughter thinks about her mother's laugh or her mother's voice. Whenever I hear a case where the victim had a very young child, I can't help but wonder about those things. My cousin was murdered by someone for no reason as well. 
And, you know, really cold-blooded murder never has a good reason. But I had the same thoughts about his daughter. I can see his smile. I can hear his laugh and hear his voice. But his daughter was so small. So when I look at cases like this, I really, really hope that there are videos or audio recordings that Jessica's daughter can listen to. And the same for Matthew's nieces and nephews. But Janiah will have her own dreams and she's following them with the support of her immediate and extended family and friends. She has the knowledge that her mother is looking down on her in love and pride and hopefully smiling at the young woman that her daughter has become. Tony Castro was best friends with Matthew Maserato and he's tried to make their dreams come true. He created a music label named Third World, and this was a dream that they both had together. Castro produced his own album named Triple Threat, and most artists on the label are themselves residents or citizens of Wilmington. Now, I will um, try to put a link to their Facebook page in the comment, or I'm sorry, in the description. There is another Third World label, um, but that is out of the UK. This one is out of Wilmington. The difference that I saw when looking at the logo or information is that the one in the UK, Third World, is spelled um, as two different words, whereas the one that Tony Castro is talking about is all one word. But he's trying to keep his friend's memory alive by opening that label. In cold cases, they're not unsolvable now. Looking at Wilmington alone, there was a conviction of a 2013 murder in 2019. And while, yes, the difference in time frame is much shorter, only six years as compared to the 18 years it's been since Jessica and Matthew were killed, but that case shows that things are changing. There's more technology than ever at our fingertips, and maybe one day, through the help of a tip from someone that can maybe lead to evidence that we wouldn't be able to obtain 18 years ago because we have newer technology. Maybe with other advancements in science, one day these murders and hundreds of other murders can be solved across the nation. In many of the articles or items that I post in the links, there will be either a phone number or a website that you can use to provide a tip if you do happen to know anything about the case. In some of them, a detective named Mark Ride is listed as um, the detective in charge. However, I did email him previously to ask if there were any things that he wanted to emphasize on the case, but he referred me to another person um, he didn't give the email, so I had to try to look it up, and I've not heard back um, after a couple of weeks. So, you know, just for the sake of this episode, go with the website or the phone numbers listed in the re resources um, that I put in the description, because as far as Mark Ride, he is now not with that particular unit. So at least with the phone numbers, um, and website, we do know that it will get to someone who is able um, to review the information that's provided. And again, I do know it's very difficult 
to be in a situation where you may be a witness or know something about a violent crime. You know that someone has committed these crimes and if you testify, what might they do to you? And I can't imagine being in that position. So I really hope that someday soon, if you are in the position to give evidence or a tip about this case or any other cold case, please let law enforcement know of your concerns. Ask about anything that they can do to try to protect you as a witness. And through this bravery and these brave actions, we can try to make the community a safer place. Thank you all for tuning into this episode. When I first started looking for information on this case, I didn't know if there would be enough to cover an episode. So the more I got into the research, though, the more I was able to find, you know, things just kind of led to different resources. So the most important thing is I'm glad that I was able to find information specifically about Matthew and Jessica. In a lot of cases, there's hardly anything about the victims. So, you know, I'm just glad that there was information out about their personalities. And, you know, that way, they're not just a name or a number. You know, they are the individuals. They are the daughters, the sisters, the brothers, the uncles, people who have been taken away from their families far too soon. So I think this will end the episode for today. It will probably be about two weeks before I have another episode out. There's a couple that I'm working on, um, but the next case or episode probably won't be a true crime. It would be a tragedy or disaster case um, because the last two that we have had been murder cases. If anybody does have any suggestions, I will be leaving contact information in the description as well. So um, I leave a lot of information in the description. So if you ever, you know, need anything or want to look up anything, there's a ton of info there. Um, I hope everyone does have a safe week and I hope everybody had a safe and happy holiday. If you do celebrate a holiday and I will look, or I look forward to talking to everybody soon. Bye.